WNL After Class, the Lifelong Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Today I'm talking with Rob Strong, the Crawford Family Dean of the Williams School and Professor of Business Administration. With almost 24 years at Washington and Lee, Rob brings a wealth of knowledge and insights about the unique interdisciplinary approach of the Williams School. In this episode, we'll delve into Rob's journey at WNL, the evolution of the Williams School's distinctive approach within a liberal arts curriculum, and the exciting initiatives on the horizon, including the plans for the new Williams School building. So whether you're an alum nostalgic for your time on campus or a prospective student curious about the WNL experience, I hope you enjoy our conversation about education, corporate responsibility, and the dynamic future of the Williams School. So, Rob, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, you came to WNL almost 24 years ago, and I'm curious to how you arrived at Washington and Lee and what drew you to this community. So, my uh, my undergraduate experience was at Baylor University. Uh, I, I went into industry for a brief period after I graduated from Baylor uh, and then became curious about the potential of a career path in higher education. That led me back to graduate school, moved back to Houston from the Midwest where I had been working for Shell. Uh, my first teaching position after I completed uh, whatever it was, seven years of graduate study, uh, I thought was my dream job. I had an opportunity to go back to my alma mater uh, and I joined the faculty at Baylor. And I had, I had a lot of good experiences there. I had an opportunity to, to really get grounded in what it meant to be a, a, a college professor. But one of the things that is characteristic of a lot of universities is, is you're hired to do a very particular thing. And my interest began to evolve away from the, the very specific subfield that I had been hired to focus on. And that led me to begin looking for opportunities where I could explore that uh, a bit more fully. And I saw an ad in the trades for this little school in rural Virginia that I literally knew nothing about. Uh, there was one colleague at Baylor uh, who I had confided in that I was I was testing the waters. He had grown up in North Carolina and. When I asked him if he knew anything about this school called Washington and Lee, he laughed and he, he literally looked at me and said, that place is a perfect fit for you and let me know if you apply because if you don't, I may. <laughs> uh, and I did and I went through the interview process um, and one thing led to another and I ended up getting the opportunity to, to move here. And so my family and I moved in the, in the summer of 2000 my wife and I are both Texans uh, and still think of ourselves that way. So that was a bit of a change. A little cooler, too, I would imagine. Better climate yeah. all, the, all the way around. Um, and we've, we've fallen in love with the place. We've been really blessed to have raised our kids here, to continue to live here, and to make a, 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 a home here. So when you first arrived at WNL, you were teaching courses in marketing management and international marketing. At that time, were you also teaching courses in socially responsible business practices, or, or did that come later? That came later. Um, my training is in marketing. I had worked in marketing uh, with Shell, and it was actually the opportunity to focus a little bit more on, on international issues that led me 
to come to WNL. That was what I wanted to do more of at Baylor, but there there was already somebody else doing that work, and it would have been redundant. Um, so I I got here, and and that was my primary focus, both in terms of my teaching and my scholarship for probably the first six or eight years that I was that I was here. Um, during that time, we began to see the emergence both in academic business circles and and certainly in the practice of business of, of a growing concern about environmental impact, social impact, work-life balance, a lot of different issues that that we now understand comprise this this idea of sustainable business strategy. And I began looking into that and it was it was in 2011, I believe, that I offered, along with Elizabeth Oliver uh, in the accounting department, a, a co-talk course on that topic that in our spring term that involved uh, taking students to Copenhagen, exploring with first-year students this debate about what, what the mandate for businesses, particularly corporations, is. Is it simply profit maximization and, and stock price maximization, or do they have a broader obligation to deal with the environment, social impact, human rights, and so on? Was that first class eye-opening experience for both of you and the students? It was. You know, anytime you teach a new class, you're, you're trying to stay a half step ahead of the students. Um, and, and add to that the logistical challenges of international travel with students. I had done that on a very small scale a couple of times, not related to classes. Yeah, it was it was a, a equal parts exhilarating and terrifying uh, <laughs> as to how it was going to go, but it was fabulous. And I, I learned how much you can bond with students and bond with them in a, in a more holistic way, a different way. Uh, if you're spending most of every day with them in a, a country that's unfamiliar uh, on some level to, to, to all of them and, and, and to me as well. So we've, we've taught that class a number of times since. It was interrupted by the pandemic. We're not going to be able to offer it this year because of obligations we have on campus, but we'll be right back at it next year. Um, a little later on the podcast, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a little more about that. Great. Um, but to, to backtrack just a little bit, you mentioned your career working uh, for Shell Oil's Refining and Marketing Division. Can you explain just a little more of what drove that transition? You, you talked about that transition to teaching, but then what about that transition to administration? Yeah, in some ways, the the sort of industry experience drove that. I loved being a, 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 a rank-and-file college professor. You get to work with amazing students, and you get the freedom to explore topics uh, in terms of your scholarship. That, are, that it's, it's very fulfilling. Um, but there was also still a part of me that was a business person. And the opportunity presented itself, um, I believe it was in 2003, the associate dean's position in the Williams School opened up, and I had a chat with Larry Peppers, a longtime dean and, and great mentor of mine, frankly, about whether that is something I should be thinking about. And, and truthfully, my thought at the time was I just wanted him to know that I might be interested in that down the road. So I was a bit surprised a week or so later when he called me back in and, and said he would like me to to consider taking the job right then. But I trusted him. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't have asked me if he didn't think I could do it. 
And uh, so that was that was my first foray into academic administration. And I and I served in that position for 12 years. Along the way, Larry, you know, I learned a lot directly from Larry. I learned a lot observing Larry sort of indirectly. And when he announced his intention to step away from the dean's position after, frankly, a remarkable 29 years, they're not getting 29 years out of me. Let's be clear. <laughs> um, I had that. I had a decision to make. Did I did I want to apply for that for that position? And I decided that I I, I would. It, it I was it was the national search, so I was I assume one of of many candidates. Uh, went through the full interview process and and ended up being appointed uh, Larry's successor beginning in in 2015. So you once mentioned that the Williams School's positioning within a liberal arts curriculum is unique among its peers. How did it evolve into the interdisciplinary approach that it offers students today? It it is, I think, unique. I think it's part of what makes Washington and Lee unique. In contrast to, for example, our our other, you know, highly selective liberal arts peers, but also the liberal arts focus making. Uh, WNL unique in contrast with schools like the University of Virginia and William and Mary and 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 others with whom we compete for students and for faculty. Um, the origins of the Williams School might surprise a lot of folks. The idea was taken up by the trustees in 1905, and it was approved and uh, began to operate as one of the two undergraduate academic units the following year in 1906. It evolved from what we would now know as the departments of economics and of politics. Uh, at that point, the, the focus of much of the work done in those two areas was on political economy and the development of human capital, you know, coming out of the industrial revolution and, and, and all of that. The business part of it evolved from a simple uh, offering of two classes, as I understand it. I, I haven't done the primary research on this, so this is oral history. Uh, but as I understand it, the, the, the two business classes at that time were bookkeeping, which you could imagine tracks with our you know, current emphasis on, on accounting, and penmanship. Which, penmanship? Penmanship. <laughs> Um, which I found really novel. I, I think I learned this from legendary uh, economics professor John Gunn. And if I ever have time, I probably should go over to special collections and, and dig through old uh, course schedules and catalogs and see if, if that is in fact the case. So the departments that we, that we now have, two of them would have been the, there at the very beginning, the departments of accounting and finance, and the Department of Business Administration have evolved from those two humble courses at the beginning. So Rob, you've touched on the Williams School being different than business schools at other institutions. Could you expand on that just a little bit? Sure, I, I mean, for one, I, I don't necessarily think of the Williams School as a business school. Um, that has a certain connotation to me uh, as a business professor and having worked in what I think of as much more orthodox business schools. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons I think of us as somewhat broader is the inclusion of the politics department, which is very unusual. I, I've not come across any other 
uh, colleges or universities where the politics department is housed alongside areas like you know marketing, finance, accounting, uh, and so on. But I think it's I think it goes beyond that. Even if we look at the the business program that we offer itself, and 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 I'll I'll credit my my colleague Amanda Bauer, who I think you've had on the show yes, before. Yes, she has been on the show um, for. After after many years of the two of us working together for for helping me to clarify my understanding of of of, of my point of view, she at a planning retreat a number of years ago said, "We don't aspire to be a business program at a liberal arts school. We aspire to be a liberal arts business program." And I think that changes the way we imagine our curriculum. It changes the way we deliver the curriculum. I think we're much more comfortable living on the frontier of what it means to be a marketing professor or a finance professor or a management professor than I ever would have been at one of the more traditional, quote, business schools. It sounds like this approach gives our Williams School students an edge. Could you speak to that or give us a couple of examples about how that might be? I'd like to think it gives WNL students an edge, not limited simply to Williams School students. So we talk a lot about a, a contemporary interpretation of what a liberal arts education is. And, and make no mistake, we are a liberal arts university. And, and even our business program and our journalism program and our engineering offerings and so on are are informed by the liberal arts core of, of what the university um, seeks to to be in terms of of how that integration of some of these I don't know so-called pre-professional topics works with traditional disciplines in the humanities sciences social sciences and so on I think I think each of those areas brings a slightly different focus and the students if they're if they're taking full advantage of it and moving back and forth through different disciplines and different groupings of disciplines over their time here they learn to define problems and address problems in a more complete way than I would have learned as an undergraduate student who was basically locked in the business school from my sophomore year through graduation. Um, I think the, the ability for our, our humanities faculty to lead students through an exploration of how problems are framed in multiple ways that would contrast a little bit with the way a traditional business course might, might approach problem solving um, is really important for a student who may be a business major. It, I think the access to some business classes that might provide maybe a bit more applied opportunity, I would hope is viewed as important for a history major or a philosophy major uh, or, or any other discipline. So I, I really think the university is at its strongest when all of these uh, areas are, are, are operating you know, well and the students are taking advantage of the breadth of the curriculum rather than pigeonholing themselves in a in a single area of study. Yeah, so a much more well-rounded student. Right. So I'd like to return to <clears throat> our discussion about spring term. Studying abroad seems to be so much more prevalent than it was when I was in school. Do you know how many students approximately study abroad? I don't know 
the exact number, if if I had to guess, I'm going to say it's it, it, if you define study abroad in terms of our our spring term abroad classes that we offer, more traditional semester long abroad, some of the summer programs that have evolved. I'm, I I would say upwards of two thirds. It it's wow. it's definitely a, a key part of the student experience here. And am I correct in thinking that Washington and Lee is uh, moving toward making that available to all students? Yes. Uh, for those that are that are familiar with our strategic plan, um, one of the key initiatives, and it, it's it's one of frankly two that I think the if we fast forward forty or fifty years will be viewed as a as a major game changer. One of the key initiatives is providing students the full WNL experience. The reality is a lot of these international programs are expensive. Um, some of that cost has traditionally been passed on to the students participating, choosing to participate in those programs. And the effect of, of those costs is that it excludes some students from participating. Uh, President Dudley made a decision a number of years ago with respect to spring term programs to provide funding that he had available to him to ensure that that any student who wanted to participate in a spring term abroad program could do so. Um, that was that was a, a, a great step. But we've also, we, we have summer programs, we have domestic travel programs, we have programs that aren't in the spring, and we want all of our students, if we can get to this full WNL experience goal, to, to have full access to those. And, and wasn't this the first year as well that all students had uh, the opportunity to attend the first year experience? It was, yes. Uh, that That's a program run out of student affairs. Uh, it used to be known and, and still gets talked about as PREO, um, pre meaning pre-orientation. It's been rebranded a bit. Uh, it's, it's referred to as the leading edge program. And for many, many years, rough, roughly half of the incoming first-year class would participate. And, and it was really driven by just how much space they had in the different programs that comprised uh, that pre-orientation experience. The Board of Trustees stepped up a few years ago and, and said, this is such an important program. It's such an important way that students begin to build community uh, among themselves as they go through that sometimes scary transition from high school to college that every student should uh, should have access to it. So last academic year, I believe funding was made available to ensure there was capacity for 75% of the first year class. And this year and every year going forward, the expectation is that the full class uh, will participate. And and I think I think it, it it's noticeable in terms of the interactions that we see among the current first-year students. Yeah, especially these students are ones that are coming out of uh, you know being in high school during the pandemic. So those social re relationships are very important. Let's let's go back to your spring term course in Copenhagen. What topics are you exploring with students during your time there? I think the official title of the course is International Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability. And it draws off of, as I explained earlier, this trend of companies really beginning to ask, what is our obligation? Is it simply to maximize the traditional accounting measures and financial measures? Or uh, do we have an obligation that extends beyond that? Um, there are some companies that were trailblazers in, in this regard, one that 
you know, a lot of people think of in terms of, of social conscience is Ben and Jerry's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They were here on campus yeah. uh, a year or two back uh, to, to give a talk. Um, so we look with our students, and, and I, I should note if I haven't, the course is restricted to only first-year students. So these are students who have probably not had any business education up, up to this point. Maybe they've had an intro economics or intro accounting class, but it's not an expectation. We, we look at the debate that's been going on going back to you know, the 60s or 70s about what the, what the sort of obligation of, an, of a corporation is. We look at different frameworks that uh, have been applied in recent years to help us understand the broader social and environmental uh, implications uh, for businesses. And then we spend a good deal of time looking at specific companies. First, companies that are primarily U.S.-based. And given that most of our students are coming from a U.S.-centric background, they know these companies, they they probably understand the mindset of, of these companies and, and their industries on some level. Um, and then we begin to look at a number of Danish-based companies, often operating in the same industries, looking for points of comparison and contrast. And what begins to emerge there is some clear indication that these Danish companies often are interacting with their shareholders, with their customers, with the general public in different ways because of their understanding of this sort of social environmental uh, obligation. When we get to Copenhagen, we visit the Danish companies that we've studied and the students get direct interaction with some of the senior managers that are driving the, the sustainability efforts of those companies. Some of the students are really motivated by what they're learning. Others question it, and that's fine. That's our, our goal is not to indoctrinate students into a particular point of view, but to, to allow them to explore this debate in, in sort of real moments. And they, I, I, th I think it's fascinating to watch how they individually respond to these, uh, uh, these visits. So is, is Denmark still pretty much the world leader in that area? Uh, it's on the short list, for sure. Um, the, I, I think Denmark and, and the Nordic countries collectively have been grappling with this in part, and this goes back to my, I, I would say, earlier parts of my career where I was looking at a lot of international research and, and conducting international. It goes back in part to some of the cultural norms that drive institutions, including business, drive the politics of those countries um, drive the religion and 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 culture, small c meaning you know arts and 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 expressions of of what it means to be to be human. So th I think the institution of business and the specific businesses in Denmark and the Nordic countries evolved because a lot of this is woven into their society and and has been for a very long time. Um, but it's it's worth noting that when the EU began to explore requirements for companies in terms of sustainability reporting, they more or less adopted the requirements already in place in Denmark. 
why reinvent the wheel? And so I think it is fair to say that Denmark has been and remains a leader in this regard. So it sounds just a little different than our corporate America. What challenges and impressions arise when American students engage in Denmark in regards to the context of sustainable business practices? Well, you know, one of my favorite moments when we when we travel with the students is is the arrival at the airport. And I, I'm not a huge fan of airports. Let's be clear. But for some of these students, it's the first time they've they've traveled internationally. Uh, and I always try to make sure I'm in the front of the immigration line ahead of all of our students because I want to clear first and watch their faces as they come through the barrier that and it dawns on them that they're actually this is actually happening. Um, and you see these big smiles and they they're looking around. So for some, it's just this idea of, being a global citizen, and it becomes very real in in that moment, and it's and it's it's fun to share that. Uh, in terms of the topic of the course, our visits to the companies, but also our visits with some of our faculty collaborators over there, and our cultural tours exploring medieval Copenhagen and castles and art museums and so on, is they see this theme of responsible consumption, responsibility to the to the, the world around you in all of the things that they're encountering. It's not just about what's written in some company's corporate report or what some manager is saying during a two-hour uh, discussion of corporate strategy at Nova Nordisk or, or Pandora, for example. And so those are interesting moments. We coordinate with a partner program over there, an opportunity twice during our two weeks for the students in groups of three or four to go have dinner with a Danish family. And they're very anxious about this at first, and it ends up being one of their favorite things. When we do it the second time, they it, it can't arrive quickly enough. And in those conversations, you know, the Danish families are wanting to understand these crazy Americans, uh, but but they hear uh, discussion of politics and responsibility and to their neighbors and, and their society that I think makes the thematic element of the course. So regardless of what or where a student studies, what is it that you hope every student learns from studying abroad? Take risks. I, I think when you engage in discussions, whether it's about politics or religion or corporate responsibility or, or whatever it might be, across cultural barriers or boundaries, one of two things is going to happen, and, and they're both good outcomes. One is you're going to consider alternative points of view alongside your own points of view and conclude that you are more confident than ever about your your own perspective. That's fine. But you will understand that that there are others who think differently or who view view matters differently. The other possibility is that you may question your own points of view and they may evolve and that's beautiful, right? I didn't study abroad as a student. I had an opportunity and I passed on it. And fortunately, my professional journey afforded me the chance to travel abroad a, a little bit later in life and begin to do so regularly. And yeah, my, my points of view on any number of things are affected by the countries that I've been in, most notably Denmark. 
Our students love our spring term classes, so thank you for giving us a glimpse. Let's shift our focus now to our campus's ever-evolving infrastructure. I've been at WNL for about 10 years, and there seems to always be renovation or construction. And I know our listeners would like to hear about the plans for the new Williams School building, its features, and the timeline for completion. Yeah, this has been a project that, depending on when you when you identify a start date, is either five or six years in the making or 25 years in the making. If you ever visit a college campus and there's not construction going on, you should be very wary of that, that campus. Oh, it, that's a good point. They're probably falling behind. Yeah. It's just a, a reality when, when you've got so many different functions, uh, housing, classrooms, you know, support functions, and so on. You, you, you you have to be building and renovating um, continually. So when I arrived in 2000, the Williams School was housed almost entirely within what we what we now know as Huntley Hall, but generations of alums will simply know it as the C School. And if you go back even farther, it used to be the university library. Our programs began to grow at a noticeable rate. Uh, and by by growth, I mean uh, student interest, enrollment, number of majors, uh, and as we responded to that, that meant number of faculty, and we were outgrowing Huntley. We cannibalized spaces that served an important purpose, but d- we determined that we needed more offices and classrooms, and, and in the short run, we decided we could sacrifice certain functionality for the, the sort of core requirements of offices and classrooms. In 2005, 2006, we began to engage the university in discussions about what many will know as the old co-op building, which had been standing empty since the Elrod Commons opened in 2003. We received approval to renovate that building uh, to create more office space. There are no classrooms in that building. There are some student study areas, but no classrooms as something of a bridge project because we knew the colony renovations had to be a high priority in the in the years to come so we completed that in 2007 and that that gave us some capacity to house the growing number of faculty that uh, that were necessary to teach larger and larger numbers of students in in the four majors in the Williams school but we were again out of space, and we knew we knew we would be. We could see it happening ten years ago, and so when the strategic plan was approved in 2018, one of the key capital projects in that plan was expansion and updating of spaces for the Williams School. We've gone through numerous iterations of what that means, and ultimately approved the construction of a new building on Nelson Street where Baker, Davis, and once upon a time, Gillum stood. Uh, And that project, uh, ground was broken on that this past summer in August. That's a two-year project. It's about a 42,000 square foot building that will house combinations of classrooms, uh, faculty and staff offices, and one thing I'm really excited about, regaining some of the community spaces that we've cannibalized uh, over the last 20 years. Once that building is complete, we will move all of the people currently in Huntley Hall, which includes me, out of Huntley Hall 
and we will begin to gut and renovate Huntley Hall to bring it into a 21st century version of of itself. That's so still remaining part of the Williams School. Still remaining part of the Williams School. That's another two years. So that takes us to the summer of 2027 if everything remains on schedule. And then a lot of us will take a, a, a deep breath and relax. Um, it's, it's exciting. You know, frankly, uh, Huntley has served us well up to a point, but teaching styles have evolved since it was last uh, renovated in the late 70s into 1980. That's, that's when the, the Commerce School moved into what is now Huntley Hall. And we need classrooms that offer more flexibility to allow for different teaching styles. As I noted, we, we've cannibalized almost all of the community space. We're reintroducing that so students can interact with one another, interact with faculty, and in fact, faculty can interact with, with one another in, in ways that, that would be very different than sitting in office hours, for example. That's a major goal of both of these projects, both the new building and Huntley. So there will be an enormous increase in community space. So you teach corporate social responsibility and sustainability. And so I'm sure my next question is top of mind for you. How will the new building align with the university's sustainability goals? Yeah, it's top of mind not only for me. I would say it's top of mind for for many, if not all, of our our faculty. It's something we've talked about during the the sort of brainstorming that led to to various proposals for the building. Maybe the most important element that's being incorporated into the new building project, the Nelson Street project, is I'm not an engineer, so I may not have the terminology exactly right, but infrastructure referred to as low temp hot water, which will allow WNL as a campus to, over a longer period of time, replace its steam-based heating system. Uh, it's a much more energy-efficient approach to heating. It will not only lower costs, but it will lower our carbon footprint as well. And so as they're constructing this new building, they're building a lot of the necessary infrastructure into to the building to allow other buildings as they're renovated to be converted from the old heating system to the new heating system. Beyond that, we're looking at things like finishes. What uh, this, is, this is actually pretty common in interior design now. What are the materials being used in these finishes? How are they sourced? Um, what's the impact on, on the environment for using this tile on the floor versus this other tile on the floor. And, and that's sort of, frankly, the stage we're at right now in terms of the new building. We're looking, we're looking at that level of detail to, to finalize it within the next few weeks. So I've, I've enjoyed walking by the construction site on a, a daily basis. We've got cement walls and uh, lots of things going on. So thanks for helping us better understand that. It's been fun to watch it begin to rise from the ground. So before we wrap up today's episode, I'd like for us to learn a little more about you when you're not on campus. You've lived in Lexington for almost a quarter of a century. What do you enjoy the most about living here? I grew up in, and spent most of the first 30, 35 years of my life in, in large urban cities. Uh, but my family roots are in small town West Texas. And I, I did spend a lot of time visiting grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, and so on in, in these two small towns 
uh, out in West Texas. And when we moved to Lexington 25 years ago, it was my first experience of what it's like to be in a small community where you you really get to know the place uh, beyond your immediate you know driveway property lines and so on and that's been that's been a fun experience for my wife and I we we raised our our two boys here they were i don't know 7 and 3 when we moved and this is home to them so you and your wife Leslie are golfers who won the last game i did is she going to is she going to agree with that she would agree with that <laughs> Do but you she win will most pro- games? She will probably beat me the next three or four. Uh, so I, I got lucky this past weekend. We're it's generous to call us golfers, perhaps. We're, we we enjoy getting out. It's a it's a way to enjoy the outdoors. Uh, let's just say our game is lacking in certain ways. Well, from someone who can only play putt putt, uh, I would call you a golfer. I know you enjoy traveling. What would you say are your top three places that you visited, and what's still holding that number one spot on your bucket list? Hmm. Well, for me, Copenhagen is a is almost a home away from home. I uh, I've been I've been going to Denmark on a pretty regular basis, meaning many times a year for uh, the better part of the last twelve or fifteen years. So that that would have to be to be there. Um, one of the more interesting trips that I was lucky enough to take, and it came from one of my connections in Denmark, was a, a trip uh, 10 or 12 years ago to Greenland. And Elizabeth Oliver, my, my colleague and partner in crime and, and many collaborations on campus, and Chris Connors in the geology department, and I had the opportunity to spend about a week in Greenland, and it was just a fascinating place. The the sort of collision of nature and colonialism and uh, indigenous communities and economic and political opportunity um, was was fascinating, and I'd love to get back there sometime. Um, in terms of bucket list, I've I've never been able to get to Australia or New Zealand simply because it's so far away that I feel like I need two to three weeks. To, to make it happen, um, that would be that would be on there. I've heard from so many people that Egypt is a place that should not be missed. Yeah, that would have to be my my favorite destination. So, students, what do you enjoy most about working with undergraduate students? And are there any important lessons that you've learned from them? Absolutely, um, in terms of of learning from them. One of the things that I think WNL encourages, allows, uh, facilitates for students is the opportunity to make connections between topics, areas of exploration that most schools I don't think would it would allow or would encourage, and those work their way into classes in unexpected ways. And in those moments, if I'm if I'm teaching the class. I'm, I'm sort of rocked back on my heels when a student makes uh, a really astute observation that they may draw from a religion class and brings it into a discussion that we may be having about marketing strategy and why a particular company is, is promoting their products in, in the way that they are. 
that certainly wasn't my educational experience as an undergraduate, and and it happens pretty frequently. In terms of of the joy of working with students, it's it's just seeing what they can become, and they they continue to amaze. I, I was talking with with Carla Murdoch in the Cognitive and Behavioral Science Department, um, and and she made the same observation the other day that sometimes the best thing we can do is just step back and 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 be amazed by what these students are becoming during their four years here. So we, we get the opportunity to live vicariously through their successes, sometimes struggle with them as they're struggling as well. But that's, that's probably my favorite thing. So if you had to give one piece of advice to students, what would it be? I think I would encourage them to maintain an open mind, not only when they arrive, but throughout their four years here and beyond. I think our students tend to be planners and that can be a good thing, but it can also lead them to put guardrails on their experience that um, would result in them missing opportunities that could be epiphanies. And uh, Mark Connor, you know, former colleague, uh, longtime member of the English faculty and provost here, used to, to tell students, uh, leave room for the accidental. Maybe that's a class that you it's, it's the final class that rounds out your schedule. Maybe on the front end, you're not so excited about it, but it could turn your world upside down. And I think that's great advice. And I, I, I would encourage students here and alumni beyond to continue to, to leave room for the accidental. They, it, it might take them really interesting places. That's a great thing for us to end on. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to do it. And that's a wrap for today's episode. A big thank you to all of you for tuning in. Before we go, I'd like to remind you to check out our website at wlu.edu lifelong, where you'll discover a wealth of lifelong learning opportunities. Be sure to also explore our show notes for today's episode with Rob Strong. And while you're there, take a moment to meet the incredible individuals who make this podcast possible. Behind the scenes, we have the technical wizardry of Jim Goodwin, our masterful technical producer. The infectious beats of our brand new theme music? Well, they're the handiwork of the talented Cleveland Candler. Yes, I may have called in a family favor on that one. And our scripts come to life through the skillful writing of Kelsey Goodwin. We're also incredibly fortunate to have WNL alumni Eric Owsley, Jury Sackett, and Kelly Melvin, who serve as our strategic advisors. Until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.